Welcome to the Tradfest podcast, brought to you by the Temple Bar Company. Hello from Temple Bar, Dublin. Over the past few months here on the podcast, we've been speaking to music festivals and musicians from across the globe about their experiences during COVID-19. Today, we're honoured to be talking to one of Ireland's foremost singer-songwriters, that's Eleanor McAvoy. Eleanor, thanks so much for joining us on this week's podcast. An absolute pleasure, Kieran. I'm describing you as one of our foremost singer-songwriters. I wonder, is that what you had in mind when you started out on your musical career? <laughs> well, uh, I'm very happy to be there now, but no, it's not what I had in mind at all. Um, I really wanted to write and not really perform. I know that sounds odd to people, but I wanted to kind of be behind the scenes. I liked that end of things, you know, mm. um, and it was only by default I kind of ended up then in, in, on, on, on the stage rather than behind the stage. And of course, that default was a woman's heart. And the amazing thing uh, uh, I find about that actually is that it's uh, we're, we're looking at the year of 1992. Frightening. Oh, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, <laughs> 28 years ago. I don't know where it's gone. <laughs> I met you in Wexford uh, many years ago and there was a traditional session going on there. And Eleanor McAvoy was playing the fiddle in the session there. You're a trained violinist. So where does the interest in trad come from? Oh, I love trad. I've always loved trad. Believe it or not, I was interested in trad before I got into classical. I, I started classical violin when I was a kid, I suppose, eight or nine. But I had a, my, my, my sister's friend, Maury Branagh, used to come up to the house and she was always playing. And so I got very interested in pop radio and in trad, kind of simultaneously. And the training actually came in after that. But uh, I never lost the love of trad music, but it's not what I do for a living. I think I, I always like to say that because I, I never want to mislead people. I don't want them to think they'll come to one of my concerts and they'll be sitting on a stool playing a violin for the night because I'm not. I mean, I have an electric guitar around my neck when you come to one of my gigs. But I love trad. I absolutely love it. And I still keep it as a hobby. So the time you came down, you came down to Tagote County Wexford. It caused right. great excitement, I can tell you, in the village. <laughs> And I was just one of the guys, um, my postman, uh, Brendan Wickham, a wonderful Illum Piper from 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 uh, uh, those parts, uh, himself, myself and a couple of others. We, we had a regular session. It was Brendan's session on a Sunday night and uh, it was fantastic fun. Uh, and whenever I'm down, still, if I'm down on the Sunday, I always go down to the session. Yeah, no, so I saw your name on the list that night when we were down and I said, are there two Eleanor McAvoy's uh, when, <laughs> when I saw that? So that's why I was a bit confused by it. But what is your background then? Where are you from originally? I'm from Cabra in Dublin and uh, I grew up in a slightly odd situation. Um, Cabra in those days, it may, it may have been me, Kieran. It mightn't have been the society I was from, but it felt very grey. It felt very dark. I was born into a household that was psychotically religious on one hand and when I say religious I mean way more religious than the priests or you know the priests were light relief compared to my parents see so that on one side you know my dad had been a a, 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 a monk you know a, a Cistercian monk very very strict uh, uh, kind of uh, orthodoxy and I had that on one side and then on the other side they were quite bohemian and artistic so you had a very odd thing there going on but the one good thing was we had all sorts of music. Um, my dad was very into Mahler, um, so we had a lot of Mahler blaring out of the speakers. My mother used to listen to the radio a lot, so I had all the stuff that she'd listen to on the radio, from John McCormick to, you know, um, whatever the pop tunes were at the time. Uh, my sister was 11 years older than me, so she was listening to, you know, 
Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, Leonard Cohen. Um, my brother was into hard rock, so he was like, he was quite a bit older than me as well. So he was Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, Rory Gallagher. Um, so I had all of these very interesting influences going on at the same time. And then we had the trad thing going on. We used to go in for Sloga every year, you know. Was that through school then that you were taking it part was in Sloga? Through, through school and actually really through my sister being in school. Because I mean, I wasn't going in for Sloga when I was four years of age. So it was my sister had wanted to get a little band together. And uh, I was so into pop music, she knew how to get me involved. You know, she said, uh, well, I said, yeah, I'll do it. But, you know, I want to sing Slade, Mama, We're All Crazy Now. <laughs> so herself and Maura Brannock translated Mama, We're All Crazy Now into Irish, you know. Um, and that's how we like. So, you know, you had Mama, 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 you was Mama, 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 We're All Crazy Now. So like the, I remember the opening line was, I don't want to drink my whiskey like you do. And that became Anigodum, Ainra the Yen of Marianne and Thuay. So it was all this kind of slightly cleaned up Irish version of all these pop songs. We used to do Pete Seeger songs in Irish. Ah, uh, fair play. Yeah. You had that respect for the language and for those around you. Fair play. Ian yeah. Gwailing, of course, they used to run Slog at the time. That's right, yeah. That was my first band, I suppose. You said you were four when your sister kind of dragged you into that. When did you start learning the violin? Uh, not till I was much older. I, I was I actually played piano uh, when I was four on the on those performances. I sang and played piano. Uh, we little band. Uh, and then it was old. I suppose I was eight or nine or ten by the time I started learning violin. Um, and what happened was there was kind of my sister was just teaching me piano and she got a local lady around the corner who used to teach her. So the idea was my parents would pay for her to get lessons from this lady and then that she would teach me. That was the whole deal. Um, and Marion put me in for one of these exams, just a local exam. But there was a lady from England over at the time overseeing it. And she when she heard me play, she asked to see my parents. So my mother went round and she said, look, I think this child is very musical and I don't think you're, you know, making proper use of it. Maybe you could get her proper lessons and, you know, so um, and she said she's a good ear, maybe an instrument like the violin. So I think kind of word went out and the neighborhood and a violin appeared. And of course, it was a full size violin and I was, you know, a tot at the time. So uh, it took a couple of years before I got the half size violin. But when that happened, then I got proper lessons in the College of Music in Dublin. Um, Interesting, you mentioned having a good ear for music. That's something we associate with uh, Irish traditional music. Is it as important in classical music? Oh, God, it is. Yeah. I mean, in terms of pitch and, you know, all of that, you know, that kind of thing it is. Um, but, you know, it's very different. And, and I always feel classical musicians, it's a slightly different thing, you know, like classical musicians, they're, they're often playing some of the finest music on the planet. But that thing of not ad-libbing, you know, um, it's a very different type of musician, if you like. Um, you know, one, like a jazz musician or a, or a rock musician, they play completely by ear and that's all they know. And a classical musician does the opposite, reads everything off a page, but doesn't typically ad lib. Now, there are some that cross over the two worlds. Um, I was very much had a foot in two camps and it used to frustrate me. People say something like, oh, well, no doubt your classical training affects the way you play normally. And it, I said it doesn't at all. They seem to think you were less of a player because you had studied classical music. But I used to say to people, you can read and write, can't you? You can read, you know, you know how to write and how to read a book. And they say, yeah. And I say, well, does that af affect your ability to speak to somebody? <laughs> does that make your 
you know, your eloquence less? Does it make, if I have a conversation with you, is it any less, is it any less good because you're able to read and write? And they'd say no. And I go, well, then why is that the case with classical music? It enriches you, it brings something new to the table. That's a very good way to describe it, actually. We were speaking to Zoe Conway about that uh, in recent weeks here on the podcast. She did mention that uh, does it, the discipline of playing uh, with an orchestra, you, 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 you can't really ad-lib. So that's, that is the discipline of being part of an ensemble like that. Absolutely. In fact, when the Woman's Heart gigs we just did, you know, with the RTE Concert Orchestra, that is something, you know, you're saying to Maura O'Connell and Wallace Bird, OK, is your intro four bars? Because if your intro is four bars, you got to keep it. You can't just go look at the guys and say, yeah, another four bars, you know, and get a drink of water. You know, you don't have that. <laughs> if it's four bars, you've got to come in because you know what, if you don't, there's like 46 people behind you that are <laughs> going to be on bar six, well, whether I'm, you're there or not. I was at that performance. I thought it was absolutely astounding. And I'll talk to you about it uh, a little later. Just want to get back to your musical career. You studied music in Trinity? I did, yeah. Well, when I, I, I was going through school and I was thinking, God, all I want to do is music. And my mother wants me to be a national school teacher. So what the hell are we going to do here? Oh, and I thought I'd get away with saying, well, if I do music in college, you know, because then she'll think, oh, well, she can still teach after that, you know. Um, so uh, there was a course I really wanted to do in Trinity because it was purely academic, no playing. And it wasn't that I didn't want to play. I loved playing, um, but I knew I'd play anyway. And I thought this would be an opportunity to study manuscripts, to study harmonies, to score, you know, to look at a manuscript and say, well, how can I date that manuscript? Well, there's no valves on the trumpet, so it must be before this year. And, you know, they're using this kind of harmony, so it must be post you know, 16th century or whatever. So I wanted to do all that side of things. So uh, the course in Trinity was the one I wanted and I knew that. So thankfully I got it uh, straight away and loved it. But of course, then when I was there, I was getting a lot of work in pit orchestras and, you know, you know, busking with bands, busking on the street. I did a lot of busking and playing with bands and stuff. So I realized, oh my God, I can actually make money from playing. So during those four years, whilst I studied academic music, I was kind of shifting, thinking, OK, when I leave college, I can maybe try and get money uh, playing as, as a player. So uh, the busking side of it, because that's a different kind of discipline and you've got to get yourself heard and noticed when you're doing something like that. You do. I mean, it's funny. You, you have your outdoors. <laughs> yeah. You, you perform in a different way um, and you have to be a bit cruder, if you like. And, uh, you know, you have less subtlety than you would like when you're standing on stage with a microphone in front of you, when you can afford to uh, more liberty to kind of do different things. So it is a slightly cruder form. Um, and I suppose that you have to kind of be attention grabbing if you want to make money. Um, uh, it's funny, I think experiences like that they bring something new to uh to your place it's funny i often think of it in the way you think of the illin pipes <laughs> so many illin pipers the ones who used to do the full set they were used to playing outdoors because that was their culture a lot of the traveler culture you know illin pipers came from that culture and i often wondered is it because indoors you don't want to make so much noise and a lot of indoor players started off with like, you know, uh, without full sets. They only had the smaller sets of pipes with no regulators, no drones, certainly no regulators. And the outdoor pipers kind of did it all at once. Um, I think I always think of that as well with trumpet players like in Cuba, places like that in warm climates. You get these incredible trumpet players playing right up the top end of the of the instrument. 
And it's because they can play outdoors. You're playing outdoors, you have a certain liberty or you, you, you play very differently than the way you play indoors. So I think the busking did affect my playing, actually. Well, you've, no, you've no reverb for a start. You've no reverb yet. Well, it depends where you play, actually. Sometimes you get those pl- uh, yeah, pitch yeah, I used yeah, to have yeah, when yeah. I went to New York. I used to do a pitch in, <laughs> on, a, in a, on a Times Square and there was a little kind of place in the Marriott that had an echo thing and I used to go there a lot. So you can get reverb depending on where you stand. That would be a treasured spot yeah. then. It was actually, yeah, but it, it was misery. The busking thing was misery. It was people trying to rob you and people like you see Glenn Hansard in once and it just looks so romantic and honest to God, it's not like that. It's absolute misery and you're terrorised half the time and uh, never again. <laughs> so a little, so you got a chance to move indoors. Yeah, well, I guess um, I wish I'd known early on that songwriting was something you could do and maybe make a little bit of money off. Um but I kind of didn't know that at that age, so I focused on, on the playing. Uh, so when then did that element of your artistic, let's say, development, when did that come into your thinking? Well, I was always doing it, Kieran. Oh. Uh, like, right from the... T- actually, my first songs I ever wrote were actually in Irish. They weren't even in English, because I did it in school, and, you know, uh, it was through Sloga and all that. My first song was called Tiernan Og, and it was, you know... Um, I only started writing English songs in my teens, Um so I was always writing songs. I mean, by the time I got to college, I suppose I had two or three hundred songs written. I had just never played any for anybody. Uh, so I had all these songs there. And my brother heard one when I was, God, I would have left college maybe at this point, or maybe I was still there. And he said, God, Eleanor, you should be doing this. Like, why aren't you doing this and using these songs? And he lent me his band to record with, to do a demo. So I, I recorded three songs in a place called The Recording Company uh, in Dublin, just off Angel Street in Dublin, and uh, with my brother's band. And that's how I got my first little demo tape done. And then gradually from there, I, I, I sent that out to all the publishing companies in Dublin and around the country and uh, a couple of, I think a couple of English ones as well. And uh, they all came back. Well, some of them came back to me and said no, and then most of them didn't get back to me at all. Um, and then somebody said, you know, if you want to get your songs out there, you're probably going to have to sing them yourself. It's probably the only way. So uh, I eventually started up a little band and started gigging around myself. And I had a following in, you know, just around Dublin, really, I suppose. I was playing in Mother Redcaps and the International Bar and the Bagot Inn and the Odd Time in the Bailbucht. And, you know, um, so built up a following around Dublin. What and years? Then, what years? What age would you have been then? Oh, gosh, I early, very early 20s, I suppose. So it was kind of 1990, 1989, Um, But then I joined Mary Black's band just as a session musician. And one night she came to one of my gigs uh, down in Mother Redcaps. And uh, she heard the song A Woman's Heart. Herself and her husband Joe were at the gig that night. And uh, they were just socially coming because I was in their band, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the following day, Joe called me and said, look, Eleanor, we're seriously thinking about, you know, putting this song on this compilation album of Irish women and how would you feel about duetting with Mary on it and I was I'd love to you know uh, I was thrilled because you know with Mary on it you were guaranteed airplay you know um, and I loved working with her I was already in her band uh, I had been a fan before I was in her band so uh, so that worked out really well and then of course it went on to who would have known what had happened after that and of course simultaneous to this I then got signed to Geffen Records the same week that this happened um, there was a talent scout from Geffen Records over to sign a band from Kilkenny called My Little Funhouse. And uh, he was talking to somebody in the Harcourt, in the bar in the Harcourt. And they were talking about me, apparently. And they said, oh, you know, there's this great act on and she's on the Baggage Inn tonight. And he came down to the Baggage Inn and uh, 
he listened to the gig that night and he came to me afterwards and said, I want to sign you. Um, so that it was an extraordinary uh, month in my life, actually, just all these things started happening. And then, of course, the woman's heart thing came out and it started getting very gradually bigger and bigger and bigger. So, um, yeah, it was kind of life changing. It certainly was. And a woman's heart did take off and it just it just took over everything else. Interesting, too, that whole concept of uh, spotters, let's say, coming over from the bigger record companies and looking around. Is there much of that happening now? No, not at all. I mean, the record companies aren't investing at all in the way that they used to. Mm. Um, they're really not. Um, and I think it's more the case that artists are doing it for themselves now. And to be honest, Kieran, I would have been better off as an artist doing it for myself in lots of ways because, you know, I was with Geffen Records for a while and I with them with Columbia Records in New York uh, for a couple of albums. And it didn't suit me. <laughs> the big multinational record company did not suit me. Um, I got a bit of culture shock, I think, when I went to Los Angeles. It, uh, I found the whole thing stylists and all that. It just wasn't me. I found it very tough. Um, no, I, it was an incredible opportunity. I got to work with incredible producers and fantastic musicians and all of that. And it was very well resourced and funded. And of course, they invested in me as an artist. And I, I, I guess I benefit from that investment today. Um, but I didn't like it. I didn't like dealing with the people in the skyscrapers. It wasn't. I, I found it very hard. And actually, it was only when I became an independent artist. I mean, I've what, 50, I'm, I'm, I've just finished my 16th album. So, uh, you know, most of those have been on my own as an independent artist. So uh, it, it's been much healthier for me and much more holistic for me. You hear about record companies investing in artists that are actually investing in their own product anyway and working through the artists. I suppose a lot of artists wouldn't be prepared for that because you kind of get into it through the love of it, I suppose. You're exactly right. You're getting into it for the love of it and you don't understand, you know, in a way with all the stuff I've done since, things I've sat on on boards, I've sat on, I kind of get it much better now. I wish I had understood all of that I understand now back then. Because a lot of it was just misunderstanding um, on both sides. And uh, had I understood like maybe how to speak to them or, or um, how to present stuff to them, I think I would have been better off, you know. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on here, actually, Eleanor, because you're talking about writing your own stuff, getting other people to perform it and getting on stage with other people, playing with orchestras, playing electric guitar. Yet one of the last albums you did was somebody else's music, the Thomas Moore Project. That's right, yeah. Well, I always had a love for Thomas More, and it came out of a choir I was in as a child. Uh, once I got into the College of Music, there was a little choir you could join. And there was a guy conducting that. I wish, I wish, I wish I had gotten to know him. He was kind of a crotchety old man as far as I was concerned. But his name was Leo Maguire. Yeah. And I didn't know it, but he had a radio program on uh, where he used to kind of have this catchphrase, if you do sing, do sing an Irish song. And he was a songwriter and I wish I had known that I know because as far as he used to hand out this music and we'd sing this music and a lot of it was uh, Thomas Moore songs and I remember thinking oh my god these melodies are amazing and I didn't quite understand a lot of the words but I liked the way the words fitted to the melodies but I remember even then I did not like the arrangements I didn't like the chords I felt a lot of the chords uh, the taste was not to my taste <laughs> they were too schmaltzy and I remember even back then feeling that about that 
And as I got older, I thought, God, I'd love at some stage to do these songs, but in a modern setting, the way I do my own songs, you know, um, and not really having the courage because it wouldn't be cool and it wouldn't be hip. And, you know, um, and then a few years ago, I just said, you know, you know, forget about what's cool or hip. You've always wanted to do this. Just look at it and do it. And I thought I, I mentioned it to a lot of people. There was nobody thought it was a good idea. Nobody, you know, my rock and roll friends are saying, oh, God, what do you want to do that for? Um, the the people who loved Thomas Moore was going, what do you want to do that for? If you're going to do it, do it properly with harps. And, you know, and I said, no, no, I want to do it with drum loops and flugelhorns. And and they said, you're going to ruin the songs. And I said, I'm not. I'm going <laughs> to create something new with them. And uh, um, I do have to acknowledge somebody here in Dr. Una Hunt, you know, who did an incredible collection, very authentic uh, to the real versions of she did every song of the uh, the, the melodies, Moore's Irish melodies, um, which was an extraordinary body of work. And I don't think she's been given enough credit for it. Uh, so I thought, you know what, the real authentic versions are there. She's put that down. That's there forever on recording. You know, why don't I now do something a bit different? So I looked at a lot of the songs, some of the popular ones, some of the ones that really didn't get much notice or, or that were kind of unknown. I went through all of them. I looked at the 200 Moors Irish Melodies. I looked at all his other stuff. I went into the, the Royal Irish Academy there in, in Westland Row of Music and looked at some of the old manuscripts and I got uh, every song he'd ever written. I looked at them all and I made a selection then of those and uh, I went about coming up with different arrangements. Now, you know, a lot of Irish music is in 6-8 or, you know, so... I wanted to change the groove of some of them so that they fit in with kind of hip hop drums or uh, not in any way to denigrate it because I love these songs, but to try and enhance it and just bring something new to it. And, you know, I read a lot of Thomas More's letters uh, in the Royal Irish Academy and there's a, that they have a, an archive there. You can call up the letters. It was incredibly to be touching the paper of the stuff he touched. And there's a, a place in Wilshire as well where he lived. And I went to the library there and uh, read a lot of his letters. And in some of them, he's saying about he hadn't been that happy with some of the arrangements himself. His publisher imposed an arranger on him. And uh, that really gave me the freedom, <coughs> excuse me, to really go for it, to kind of do what I felt would be right for these songs. So like things like at the mid air of night, I just took a whole different take on it. Um, I made it much more stark. And I remember before I went into the vocals, I read this the passage of his book about, uh, you know, his five children died. They predeceased him. Can you imagine as the last child is dying and you think, my God, I've had five children and the fifth one. They all died like for completely different reasons. One fell, one died of a fever, you know. Um, and I remember just thinking about the mid hour of night and speaking to somebody who's no longer with you anymore. And oh, he's an extraordinary man. He's had an extraordinary life. And I don't think we cherish him enough here in Ireland. The trad musicians kind of feel he sold us out to the Brits or something. Maybe I'm wrong about that, Kieran. Right, I Maybe you'll... I, I, I've never felt that, I must say. Uh, but then I, would, I may not be looking at it that deeply, if you know what yeah. I mean. The classical musicians looked down on him, I think. Really? Even though Beethoven did, you know, you know, looked up to him. And like, I, I don't know, I find it frustrating that he doesn't quite have that place in Ireland that he should have. Well, you've done your bit to try and redress that for sure. 
what uh, amazes me about all of this is you you mentioned earlier that maybe by the time you started in college you had a couple of hundred songs written yet with all that you've written even since then you go back to somebody else's work to have a look at it why 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 that for you or why did you need to get out of your own workspace I, I needed to get it out of my system. I'd wanted to do it for years and okay. uh, and I'd never had the opportunity and I thought I would just do it. Um, and, uh, you know, on all my albums, like most people have that first album where they do covers, you know, to kind of find everybody like, you know, from Paul Simon to, you know, they all, all those people, you know, as Bob Dylan, for God's sake, who's a famous songwriter, his first album, he did like other people's songs. So. I never had that. I was writing songs from the get go for my very first album. So I thought, okay, maybe it's a bit late into my career, but I'm going to do this album now where I do all other people's songs. And then I went straight back and I brought out my next album, which was, you know, um, my own songs again. But I really needed to get that out of my system. I wanted to do it all my life and I've done it now. You've Um, done it. Yeah. Established. Yeah. Having Uh, said that, I'd love to do a television documentary on him. I'd love to look at his life and, you know, I'm I'm working on it, but it's uh, it's it's hard to get the funding for stuff like that. You mentioned uh, 92, I think, was that massive year, that crazy year for you. 2020 has been pretty crazy, too. Yeah, 2020 has been a bit mad. I mean, I've, I was in, out in Australia um, on tour. Well, like, we did the Women's Heart gigs in you February. Did. That was fantastic. And uh, we went out then on tour to Australia. I went out on tour to do my Australian tour. And I suppose I was a third of the way through it when uh, uh, I did a gig in Melbourne. It was my last time I was on stage on the 12th of March. And I came off stage that night and a couple of people had cancelled because of this virus, you know, and I was thinking, God, this is actually getting a bit serious. And... Uh, I remember think saying to my tour manager that night, God, maybe we should get some hand sanitizer for the CD table. I mean, that was the level it was at out there. It wasn't a big panic. And by the next morning, the world seemed to have changed. And my friends were ringing me saying, get home, get home now. And um, they're going to start closing the airport soon. And I cancelled my tour, uh, got on a plane and came home. And it was kind of frightening. I nearly didn't get a seat home. Thank God I got home because a lot of people were stranded out there for months. Uh, and yeah, as we know, the world has changed. Um, I came in to do a lot of ho- work with, you know, I'm on the board of IMRO, I'm the chair of the board of IMRO at the moment. So uh, we had to, you know, do stuff that we've never had to do. We had to close the building. We had to enact an emergency plan. Thank heavens we had one in place to just enact. So we were up and running within two days. We got all our distributions out on time. We've had to take on a lot of extra to work to make sure the members are looked after we're you know i'm on this task force now lobbying government to try and make sure the sector isn't forgotten about as we get uh, back up and running again we set up a mental health thing we've you know we've done a whole lot of uh, procedures in place for that so that took up an awful lot of time uh, on my return home um i also found i was slightly disabled in a way that i wasn't able to write for a while which is usually it's great for me to have time off because i'd be writing but I, I couldn't do it. And I found a lot of my colleagues were the same. Um, there was just this slight low level anxiety. I passed that now, thankfully, and got writing in a furious kind of pace. And uh, I've just finished recording an album, actually. Again, very unusually for me, uh, I had to do it remotely. I've, I've always ever I've always gone into the studio and had everybody there and we've always played live. But for this one, I had to like my, my accordion player, Sasha, was in St. Petersburg in Russia. So he was flying his parts in from there. Lean Bradley was giving me his drum parts from Donegal. Um, so players from all over. Paul Brady did his bits from his studio. Uh, uh, he had his uh, bass player, Jennifer Maidman, putting in some stuff. So we had all these players from all over the world um, putting in their parts. 
uh, and I'd look at them in Dublin and kind of uh, my engineer Kieran would put them all together and uh, very unusual way for me to make an album. And when can we expect to see that hitting the shelves as it were? Oh my gosh, Kieran, I don't know <laughs> um, because I don't know what to do now. I'm, uh, you know, I'm guessing early next year. But like realistically, how am I going to sell an album if I'm not on the road? Um, having just cancelled the German tour, uh, you know, all my work now has been cancelled. So I, I just don't know when I'll be gigging again. I think I will release something before Christmas, just to, a single from it. Um, but it's it's very interesting. Um, I only realised how much I travelled when I stopped travelling. About six months into lockdown, I looked when was the last time I had this long in the same bed every night going to bed in the same bed and it was over 30 years when I looked at my diaries it was over 30 years and I I found myself listening to music from all around the world I was I started listening to tango music I started listening to Paco de Lucia I started listening to you know a lot of Russian accordion music actually um electronic music you know my friend and producer Rupert Hine died I was heartbroken I started listening to all his stuff again got me back listening into a lot of kind of electronic kind of stuff I started listening to a lot of air and it was funny all that then started feeding into the album you know and I found myself looking back a lot at music I used to listen to as a kid and looking at it in a kind of a, a present day context and looking to the future so it all fed into the album so there's a funny nostalgia but it's kind of in a present day casing it's very hard to describe so there's a, you might get a chorus that's like an old time chorus but then you get straight into a kind of quirky more modern vibe for the verses so yeah i started listening to a lot of miles davis as well so it made me want to put a lot of flugelhorn on the new album and you slay it well no but actually i, I was actually listening to some of the older stuff i was listening to you know those were the days my friend we thought they'd never end and I kept listening to that song over and over and over again. And after the woman's heart gigs that we did, uh, Scarlet, I wrote a song called Scarlet Angels um, about that night, about the gigs, because Wallace Bird had this idea we should all dress in red. And I was thinking, ah, there's no way Maura O'Connell's going to go with that for that. So I said, you know, really, let's see what Maura thinks, you know. And Maura went, that's a great idea. And I was thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to have to buy some red dress for myself, you know. <laughs> But tell us um, about that so I, uh, that woman's heart gig. I was at it in the National Concert Hall. I have to say, I was absolutely delighted to have witnessed what I thought was just a magnificent performance by the three of you, Maura, yourself, and Wallace Bird, which to me would have been an unusual choice. Not It's just that maybe she's a different generation. Not, she's certainly a fantastic singer, but I, I thought it was unusual to have her there. And then hearing her in performance, it all made sense to me. Yeah, I mean, it was a bit risky, to be honest. People said, are you sure? Wallace Bird and Maura O'Connell. And they'd never met each other. Yeah. So I kind of had to talk to each of them. And, you know, I knew Maura would trust me. And I said, this woman is terrific. Maura, trust me, Wallace. She's epic. She's amazing. And I think Wallace had known of Maura, but, you know, had never met her. Um, they loved each other. The second they met, they loved each other. They admired immensely what the other did. So you had this extraordinary mutual respect. I also knew, I knew, I knew, I knew that the voices would blend very well together. And they were kind of a dream team. Um, and uh, fair play to the RTE Concert Orchestra, who Mary Sexton and Joe Chibby, I have to say, they could not have been better. They could not have been more supportive. Um, and uh, together we came up with the whole thing and, uh, you know, what to do, uh, the list of songs, how to progress them. And it was just 
an amazing night. It was incredible. Uh, and you had the mixture. I never want to rehash things. I never want to do old things for the sake of doing it. I'm only interested in doing it if it brings something new to it. And having the orchestra on board and having Wallace involved just gave it a whole new thing. I loved it. It was just such a special night. Uh, Scarlet Angels, there's a, an image so from that performance. IMRO, you mentioned you're the chair of IMRO. That's the Irish Music Rights Organisation. What is your work? Well, you know, IMRO, just a lot of people don't quite understand what we do. So we collect royalties from, you know, concerts, from hairdressers, from radio play, television, all of that kind of stuff. And we give it out to the songwriters, not to the performers who perform the music, but to the songwriters, the people who write the material. So that can be confusing for a lot of people because, you know, if you hear Madonna's like, you know, uh, you know, like a virgin on the radio and you think, oh, well, you collect that money and you give it to Madonna. And actually we don't. We collect that money for that song and we give it to Billy Steinberg and Tom Kelly because they're the guys who wrote like a virgin. So uh, that's basically what we do. We also were aware of like a lot of our members now might have mental health issues. We wanted to get them financial advice if we could, legal advice. So uh, we helped to um, advance this initiative called Minding Creative Minds, where musicians, their families, uh, their wives, their spouses, their kids can call up a special helpline 24 hours a day, seven days a week, free advice, free legal advice, free financial advice, free, free um, counselling and psychotherapy which is great. We always ask people what they're listening to during uh, lockdown. I'm going to ask you that in a minute, but I want to ask you about this lobbying that you're doing on behalf of the industry, and it's actually on behalf of art, really, with the government. Who are you working with for that? Well, first of all, I'd like to say we always lobby. We do we kind mm -hmm. of often be quietly behind the scenes. You mightn't see it, but we, you know, uh, we did an awful lot of lobbying, for example, for the Copyright Directive, which is the largest piece of copyright legislation in decades to come before um, uh, the European Parliament. So we were on to all our MEPs. We were over in Strasbourg. We were over in Brussels. Uh, we had somebody on the ground over there doing a lot of work on our behalf um, and just trying to get the Irish MEPs to vote for the Copyright Directive. So we got the Copyright Directive passed in Europe, which is fantastic, but we now have to get it made law here in Ireland. So we're lobbying very strongly now in Ireland where we have to submit submissions um, for it to, to come into law here in Ireland. And we're hoping to get that done before June 2021. That's our kind of our, our deadline. So we've that going on. But directly uh, related to COVID, um, there's a task force has just been set up. The Minister, uh, Minister Catherine Martin has just set up this task force. And one of our board of Emerald, Claire Dignan, is actually chairing the task force. And I am also sitting on the task force. As well as sitting on the task force, I'm on two of the six working groups of the task force, which is coming up with ideas to keep the music industry afloat, not just the music industry, you now the art galleries, um, you know, uh, cultural institutions, um, you know, uh, cinemas, <laughs> uh, all the cultural sector to keep it afloat. Um, so, yeah, we're having meetings about that to come up with very clear, solid, achievable recommendations to government. And when can we hear, expect to hear those recommendations? Well, very shortly, we have to have it up and finished by the end of October. Okay. So it's an incredibly tight turnaround. Yeah, she's a very proactive minister anyway, I've said that much for her. Yes, absolutely is, yeah. And actually, your name came up today, Kieran. <laughs> we were talking about Tradfest and how you, you know, take over buildings that already exist um, and put, like, infrastructure in there very fast and do it extremely well. I'm always incredibly uh, um, uh, struck by how 
when I do a concert for Tradfest, how good the quality is of sound, of lighting. Um, it's always top class and in buildings that are never built for that. So um, your name did actually come up. Well, you can we tell thinking them. Maybe we could talk to you at some point well, about we're actively, your expertise. We're actively working towards it again for January 2021 anyway. So that's our plan, depending on what the government tell us that we can't do. But yes. we're uh, uh, our organisation is really what we can do. And we've always been that way uh, yeah. as far as the artists are concerned anyway. So that's good uh, to know that that's action is being taken uh, by the government. You mentioned Paco de Lucia and we've been asking people uh, what they've been listening to during lockdown. He's one. Who else? You mentioned Russian accordion players, which is an unusual one. Yeah, it is. But I knew I wanted accordion on the album. So I was and uh, <laughs> and I didn't want um, Irish accordion. I didn't want a trad kind of thing. Uh, yeah. I knew I wanted a European kind of feel. Um, I was listening to a bit of tango music as well, uh, just different grooves of tango. I was listening to Miles Davis, uh, Kind of Blue. I know it's a cliche album, but my God, um, I love the sound of the flugelhorn. Um, and there's a great player, Eamon Nolan, who did some work for me on the Thomas Moore album. So uh, I knew that I would be able to get Eamon. I knew he wasn't working with the concert orchestra because I knew he'd be uh, uh, not working. So I knew I'd be able to kind of uh, get him to play for me. So I thought about that. Um, I was listening to a lot of Paul Brady, actually. Um, because I was listening to, uh, I, I asked him to produce a track on the album actually because um, I was very struck by the way Paul Brady sings and how different it is to the way I sang and I wanted him to instruct my vocal and it was extraordinary that at this age somebody could come to me and go through my vocals and have me sing in a slightly different way and that was incredibly uh, mind-blowing um, to have him do that. So we co-wrote a song by Zoom. We did the, I haven't seen him in person since like February. Um, so we did the whole thing by Zoom uh, and he produced the track by Zoom. So amazing. So with that, I'm going to say thanks a million, Eleanor McAvoy, for joining us on the podcast. Before you go, though, we can expect a song or two from you before Christmas. Can we release from the new album? Yes, I think we can. Probably actually Scarlet Angels. I'll probably lead with that. But uh, so maybe a track before the thing. And then the album is going to be called Gimme Some Wine and it'll be out uh, early next year. Why that? Uh, because I had a song called Gimme Some Wine. I also thought it was kind of, <laughs> I don't know about you, but certainly <laughs> when I came back from it, I'm, I'm actually, people think you get rock and roll, you drink like a fish when you're on the road. And I actually don't drink at all when I'm on the road um, because you have to save your voice and you have to behave yourself. The song I have, Give Me Some Wine, was 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 actually about a painting uh, by a man called Chris Gollan, an artist I was working with. Uh, we were kind of doing a lot of boundary crossing. I was writing songs about his paintings. He was doing a lot of paintings on my songs. And very sadly, he died just as the Give Me Some Wine exhibition was opening up in Wales um, in Monmouth. But uh, I said to his wife and his kids, I promised I'd keep the flag flying for him. And uh, I, I'm calling the album Give Me Some Wine for that reason. Well, the best of luck with Gimme Some Wine and we look forward to hearing Scarlet Angels. Eleanor McAvoy, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks very much, Kieran. Thank you for listening to the Tradfest podcast. For more information on Tradfest, go to tradfest.ie. Tradfest is brought to you by the Temple Bar Company.